Hi, and a big welcome to LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. This new podcast is offering you an insight into one of the UK's great symphony orchestras and its musicians. And in case you're wondering what LPO stands for, that's the London Philharmonic Orchestra. I'm a saxophonist in the world of jazz, reggae and soul, and I've always been curious about classical music and especially how orchestras work. So I jumped at the opportunity to host this podcast. In this series, I'll be joined by players from across the orchestra, and they'll all be talking about life in the LPO, from interesting musical analysis to which venues serve the best food and drink. It's equally as important. In this second episode, which we're calling Cling Film and Rubber Bands, I'm joined by Coronglay player Sue Burling, double bassist Hugh Kluger, and percussionist Henry Baldwin. And as ever in these socially distanced times, we're chatting remotely with microphones dotted around London and the home counties. So welcome Sue, Hugh and Henry. Great to see you. Thank you. Hi, Hi, Yolanda. Hi, boys. Hi. (laughs) Well, we're going to start right at the beginning for our listeners and whoever's listening to the podcast, just so they understand what it is that you do in the wonderful LPO. So can you please clarify what your instruments are and also what they sound like? Because actually, a lot of listeners just hear the orchestra as a whole. Okay, well, I'm the core anglais player with the London Philharmonic. Generally, mellow tunes are my thing. (laughs) In the movies or even crazy Shostakovich symphonies, the strings all go berserk and then suddenly they get very quiet and they're shimmering away in a tremolando and and there'll be a massive core anglais solo. So it's usually sad tunes we're used for, not usually used for the comic element, but uh, it's a mellow oboe, basically. Oh, yes. Um, Hugh, can you tell us about your instrument and what it sounds like? I play the double bass in the orchestra and there are six of us in the section, but sometimes there are as many as 10 of us on stage playing in really loud big pieces like Mahler and Wagner. It's the lowest instrument in the orchestra and we are the most important instrument in the orchestra, of course, apart from the timpani and the percussion. We lay down the rhythm and the (laughs) harmony. I took it up because... Uh, There was one lying around the house. My dad had this really terrible plywood one from the 1970s. It was kind of this yellow color that you might see as little coffee tables in secondhand stores. Yes. These like really badly varnished. This one and this one had really soft sides it could push in. It was so old it had sat in the sun in Sydney for 30 years. So it it was a piece of garbage. And um, I don't know. I don't know why I started playing it, but I did. And... Here I am. And do you play electric bass by any chance? I do, yeah. I played mostly in rock bands when I was growing up playing jazz and rock and roll. Nice. And Very good. And Henry, tell me about your instrument. What do you play? What does it sound like? And how does it sit within the orchestra? I'm a percussionist. I'm in the percussion section of the orchestra, but I occasionally move over to the timpani if Simon needs a helping hand, uh, our principal timpanist. We're at the back of the orchestra and... Quite difficult to describe the sound we make because we make so many different sounds. Our instruments are grouped into different sections. So you have the tuned percussion instruments like xylophones, vibraphones, marimbas. We have the the drums with skins, bass drum, which is the lowest one, all the way up to piccolo snare drums. And then we have cymbals and different sound effects. Basically, anything that the orchestra members find annoying... Sound-wise, it's usually us making the noise, yeah. yeah. Uh, Sue, how does the coranglais make a sound? Okay, if we were to blow down the coranglais and its crook, 
nothing would come out. You'd just hear a rush of air. And the thing that creates the sound is our reeds and oboes, choral glaze bassoons, contrabassoons. We play on a double reed. So it's like uh, when you were small and you put two blades of grass together and you blew through. It's, it's basically works on that same premise. So these two blades of grass, they're essentially vibrating and you blow through those and you move your fingers around and tunes come out. Yeah. It's magic. <laughs> that, it's as simple, simple as that, yeah. Yolanda. It's, you know, it's just as simple as that. As a saxophonist as well, you know, yes. um, <laughs> <laughs> there are people who do say, so, so you just blow it and move your fingers, that's it. Well, we will find yeah. out later on in this podcast <laughs> how much more it is. In fact, do you make your own reads for a choral Because yes. I know bassoonists do. Yeah, it's quite hard to find really good makers. And at the end of the day, nobody's really going to make it the way that you want it. It's so tailor-made to us, yeah. as you know. And so how do you make them? What What do you need to order? And then how many um, do you make in one go? Okay, so we can go to the big cane fields in France or Italy. Wow. And this great sack of bamboo arrives through the door. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you take a big Stanley knife out and you chop it down and... Nowadays, we've got quite a lot of machinery. Yes. So we have things like gouging machines and you chisel it through and you have another machine that will shape it. Then you hand tie it on with thread onto these little metal tubes and those metal tubes go into the instrument or onto the crook of the corongli. So it can be a bit exasperating. There's a few um, companies now who are taking the work on for you. Time for us and the oboes and the bassoons is tough yeah. to just keep that production line going. And so we know we know what's needed to make a read. Have you ever had to go outside of the traditional sense of, you know, maybe using thread or wire? Have you ever had to sort of mock something up for a performance? Um, well, we're only ever as good as that horrible piece of bamboo. <laughs> we were recording um, Lord of the Rings with Howard Shaw and he wanted us to sound really terrible. And so it was one of the best days we ever had. <laughs> The whole oboe section just had to put on their worst read and sort of, it had to sound really demonic. Yes. That was great. Sounds like a dream. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Take the pressure off. Hugh, we know that you have strings, you have bows. Have you ever had to use anything like cling film and tape or anything that you found in your pocket to, to make your instrument work at a last minute? There have been times when things buzz and rattle. Our instrument's made of wood all glued together and there are also some metal bits on it. And there have been times where I've been stuffing pieces of paper in between two vibrating bits to, to try and stop them from vibrating. I mean, when a violinist, they get a hair crack in their violin, they almost feel like throwing the thing out. And on a double bass, a two or 300 year old double bass, I mean, the whole back is completely split open. The sides are split open. And most of the time, you know, until the thing actually literally falls apart, no one can be really bothered to get it fixed up. Yes. And so you're just pouring liters and liters of water onto the thing to try and make the wood swell so that the cracks are pushed back together. And yes. also the glue that holds together the double base is hide glue, which is uh, water activated. And so as soon as in, well, in the UK, sometimes it gets dry when it gets really cold. Yeah. You might think of it as a wet country, but in these halls, it gets dry. And so all the water evaporates and so the cracks open up. And so there are times when we're pouring cups of water down the front of our instruments and stuffing pieces of paper in cracks <laughs> and to stop things buzzing. That's about as DIY as it gets, I think. That's really, really fascinating. <laughs> and then also, Henry, what sort of things have you used to keep your percussion together? Hugh, I, I had no idea that we weren't the only section that pours cold water ah. on our instruments. 
our drums with membranes, a lot of the instruments we use have calf skins and so natural animal yes. skins rather than synthetic ones. Our issue is that, probably similar to Hugh as well, our instruments are often in storage, especially when we go on tour. And we might go from Italy to France and go from 35 degree heat into an air-conditioned place in, in Paris and it's raining or something like that. So a head on a bass drum can go from the very lowest sound you could imagine to sounding like a small tom-tom. And sometimes they can even split. So when, when they get too tight, we have to turn it flat and pour water on and rub the water and let the skin absorb all of the water. And then it will go completely slack. And then we can kind of re adjust the head and the what they call the, the kind of counter hoop yes. that sits underneath what's called a flesh hoop and you kind of press that down to get some slackness into the head so that you can then tune it lower again that's amazing so how would you do that if you've traveled you're on tour you've got to the venue and you've realized that you know that lovely low sounding drum that is really important for this piece is now sounding like a tom-tom yeah. how are you making that happen before or during a performance well, we always arrive early to, to check our instruments and make sure everything's like, or at least one one in the section. I remember actually, because um, Simon has this issue with his timps. And actually at the moment, his timps have um, synthetic heads on because he's been having a few issues yes. with his uh, calf skins. But I do remember him wetting the heads down on two of his drums and then going away to come back for a rehearsal and he thought the rehearsal started half an hour later than it did so we started the rehearsal and he wasn't there and I just called over to a poor young extra player I said just go and sit on the timps until Simon gets here I've sent Simon a text of course he had no idea that two of the heads were still wet and we started with um, Jupiter from the planets which has a big timpani (laughs) moment and he started playing this thing and two of the drums were at an octave lower than they should have been and it was absolute disaster (laughs) because of course if it had been half an hour later they would have dried out enough yes Hugh how do you maintain your double bass there's very little that double bass players generally do to their own instruments we're we're really bad luthiers ourselves, and uh, the kind of instruments that people in the LPO in the London Philharmonic player two 300 year old things made in Italy or from London and It's just something you wouldn't touch yourself. So we usually go to a luthier and my luthier is located in France. He's the first person I've used outside of uh, Australia. And to get my bass there, I toured Germany and he then picked my bass up in Berlin, drove it to the south of France. And this was to get um, probably two weeks of work done. And I was without an instrument for nine months because of all the travel and also because he picked it up last year in summer and every... I mean, all the glue was just melting in the south of France. And so um, it's horrible. And I usually leave things until it's you cannot play the (laughs) instrument anymore until I do something about it. And it's always expensive and time consuming. And so do you have a backup then? Because obviously you still have to be in the orchestra. You still have to perform. What, What instrument would you play? Then. Well, until recently, I had my other double bass, my backup double bass, uh-huh. you could call it, in Australia, and I eventually got it shipped over. But until then, I was borrowing um, instruments off other people. There's the principal in our section, Kevin, he has about five instruments, and so he's constantly lending out bass number three, four, or five to people. When we go on tour, we often, because we might leave on a Friday night, well, we might have a concert on a Friday night and be playing somewhere on a Saturday morning. The instruments literally can't make it there 
in time. And so we'll be playing on what we call our second instruments on the Friday night. And it's not always fun. And often there, that's the recording that we make before a tour. And it's just something you deal with. Oh, I can't even imagine, actually. With your strings, I guess strings is the main thing. Have you ever been in the middle of a concert and the the string goes or the bow goes? Does that a thing? Oh, yeah. Well, my first first ever tour with the LPO was to Japan. Must have been two or three years ago now. And um, we got onto stage for the first concert and I had... I'd just come off a tour to China with the Sydney Symphony and so I wasn't able to bring my own bass. So had this hired instrument and I was tuning up the bottom string before the very first piece. It was too low. So I kept on twisting and twisting and twisting, trying to get it to turn higher. And then eventually it just, it, with a loud bang, it snapped because <gasps> something had got caught somewhere on this instrument. I didn't know. We don't carry spare strings generally because wow. bass strings are like the size of bridge cables. You just don't expect them to snap. They should like, you know, if you wanted to, to, if you didn't care about how they sounded, they could last for 20 years. Right. And, I mean, some people don't care how they sound. They leave them on for 20 years. But anyway, this thing snapped. And so I just had to walk off stage. And luckily the principal, he had a spare string. And so I missed the overture. You know, it was pretty embarrassing when before your first Absolutely. gig with the orchestra. <laughs> You know, there's a loud bang and you walk off stage. And I managed to, you know, put a new string on and play the gig. And Henry, what, what sort of instruments do you need to buy you sort of that bag? How much would that be worth? Well, I, I don't think anything that a percussionist will use gets into the kind of, even into the woodwind kind of level of expensiveness. We're very lucky at the LPO. We have some very nice tuned percussion instruments from early 20th century in America. Our xylophone is made of Honduras rosewood. And the the issue with rosewood is that back in those days when they weren't cutting it down at the same rate, you could get very, very old trees and then you make the xylophone notes from the hardest wood in the middle of that tree. And as they've kind of harvested all this rosewood, we're now into a situation where they're growing it to demand so it's not a 300 year old tree or whatever so that kind of wood doesn't exist anymore we there just aren't trees old enough to create wood that dense so new xylophones go out of tune and the notes crack a lot quicker than these old xylophones so we anyway we've got this wonderful xylophone from chicago and i think that probably including the flight case and all the bits and bobs on it probably cost 10 uh, somewhere around ten thousand wow, pounds wow. probably one of the most valuable instruments i own isn't an instrument it's my bag of sticks ah. and mallets because they're really it's, you know they range from probably 20 to 120 pounds a pair and I have literally hundreds of yes. pairs often it's not the most expensive ones that are the most valuable to me it's the ones that have just worn over 12 years and there's just that nice spot that I can get the perfect production from a symbol yeah. or whatever and I know that stick does what I want it to do when I need to use it. It's got the perfect weighting. That's the bit for us that's very personal is our stick collection. And that's another thing that can help us change the tone of the instruments. We have these huge flight cases that carry our symbols and our things. And one one of the biggest flight cases is just a box full of sticks. I'm going to dig into something that might be quite emotional. It's emotional for me when I speak about my instrument. Have you ever been through the experience of losing your instrument, maybe on tour or, you know, you come to a rehearsal, you put your instrument down and it's been moved somewhere or lost for a longer period of time? Hugh, have you ever had the experience? You've spoken about, you know, your double bass being flown over from Australia or, you know, being on tour. Have you ever lost thinking of your principal instrument most, the one that means the most to you? Have you ever lost that 
Uh, I flew over from Australia to the UK once and uh, with my double bass yes. and it didn't turn up on the flight. So, I, you know, when I got to Heathrow and I was waiting around, then I asked around and waited for a couple of hours and they said, oh, it didn't make the flight from Sydney to Melbourne before I went from Melbourne to Abu Dhabi. And so it'll it'll probably turn up tomorrow. And so I said, oh, okay, fine. So I went went off to wherever I was staying. And the next day I called up and they said, oh, it didn't make the flight from Melbourne to Abu Dhabi this time. And so I was waiting for about three days before it turned up. And I mean, at no point did I necessarily think it wasn't going to turn up, but it made me worry a little bit. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But it's it's a risk I was going to take. I mean, I always know that when I'm flying around, I have absolutely no control over my double bass. So I'm prepared for it to be completely yes. smashed or lost when I travel. It's just, you've got to be zen about it or else don't travel with an instrument. Very true. And you've got the insurances as well, which cover you, I guess. But it's still not the same. Your instrument is your instrument, like a good pair of shoes, you know. Um, and as you're telling that story, I have sort of little tears coming in the side of my eyes. I'm, I'm watching Sue here on the video call. <laughs> I'm going <gonna, laughs> to extend this question to you because, Sue, I think I, I would understand how you feel. I have my case, I carry three saxophones in my one case. And, uh, you know, every time I walk up to check in at the airport, I'm ready for a fight. But really, I know my saxophones can fit in the overhead locker and I have to convince them every single time or book a seat, which isn't always possible. What's your experience been travelling with your Coranglay and have you ever been separated? Yeah, briefly. I mean, you're right. When you get to the airport, you take your life in your hands and just hope you have nice check-in stuff. I did have a close fight on my hands once when they just said that is not going on the airplane and I just said it's gone on every other airplane I've ever been on why what's the problem you know I think the last few years the orchestras have struggled a little bit with the size of violin cases and things but I still consider myself very lucky to be able to carry it and I have a double case which goes on my back and when I leave the house it's on my back and it only really comes off when I get to the rehearsal venue but in the old days I had a smaller single case and uh, I remember we were touring like crazy and we were getting on a train going up north somewhere and the next day to an airport and you know your brain's in a million places and I just went off to get a coffee I put my case in front of me at the checkout till paid for the coffee and walked away and it was just seconds but it was all about 15-20 seconds enough time for that case to go yeah and I ran so fast back to this coffee place and it was just there just just still where I just sort of popped it just in front of the till, you know, but my heart just sort of disappeared completely. And I just thought, oh my God, you know, I mean, I'd have to take months off if I lost my instrument, just get set up all over again and find an instrument. You can't just go to a shop and pick one off off the rack and carry on as if nothing happened, you know. That's interesting. So So it's actually the opposite of what we're hearing from Henry and Hugh, really. Yeah. It is so personal. Very personal. Yeah. I had a big bag of sticks stolen from a vehicle years ago. That was a kind of a 15, 20 year collection gone in a flash and from a car park in Park no. Royal. I'd gone to the, no. gone to the cinema instant, or bowling or what something. What was your instant emotion? I drove home and I had a van at the time. It was in the back of the van. And I didn't realise that I'd been broken into. And I got home and went to put my key in the lock in the back. And there was just a hole. No. There was obviously that, you know, heart in mouth yes. moment that I opened. But, and unfortunately, I, f- I phoned up the police and there's probably three or four thousand pounds worth of equipment taken because a couple of instruments went as well. And I phoned the police and they said, are you in any danger? Does anybody <laughs> have a knife is. or a gun? No. 
okay, uh, we're not going to do yeah. anything. You know, and I said, but don't you have cameras? Yeah, they were probably wearing a hood. Yeah. But somebody found my bag just on the side of the A40 somewhere. And uh, there are a few sticks in found in bushes. and So any sticks recovered at all? Do you have any sticks? That- no, Nothing. no, not really. Oh. No, no. Oh, yeah. I feel your pain. So. I absolutely feel your pain. <laughs> Sue, playing the Coranglais, it must be quite a personal a personal thing to have your instrument. Do you have more yeah. than one or do you have your instrument and it really needs to be the way that you have it set up, ready to go? I have just the one. Um, I played on one that actually used to belong to Lady Barbarolli and I played on that for 25 years. It's the first Coranglais I ever had and and it was a very, very hard thing. It sort of died on me, really. It just blew out. Yes. So I had to uh, bring a new one in. And it's not an easy thing, you know, A, just blowing in a new instrument and you've still got to sound amazing. So there were a couple of um, hiccups, not that I like to dwell on all that stuff, but <laughs> I did find it, it was, I did turn up and sound like a sort of grade three student once. I mean, it was just, just trying to get to grips with, you know, the keys are in a slightly different place. It yes. needed a whole different setup. It, it took me quite a long time to adjust and it's not, great or ideal trying to do that when you're in one of the best orchestras. How do you keep your Coranglay in tip-top shape? What's sort of the routine or regime that it goes through? Well, they're incredibly delicate mechanisms, really. And I'm just thinking about in the old days, our old normal, when we used to be on the road a lot more, they're terribly um, sensitive to heat, cold, humidity, everything changes, you know, and so in a very humid climate, the wood swells and then your keys can kind of, you know, can lock up a bit. Our reeds can ping open and be way too open and hard to be able to function. So Madrid is a famous hall that's incredibly high uh, in altitude and it, it just affects everything. Yeah. I try not to think about it. We just turn up, we rock up to a new hall and we just sort of get on and we do it. Yes. But then you'll come off later and just go, God, that really felt really different. <laughs> that was hard know, work, yeah. And completely different to the concert the night before, you know. So we're dealing with a live thing all yeah. the time. No, it's fascinating. And you're right. I remember uh, going on tour to the Caribbean. I prepped a box of reeds. I don't have to make my reeds, thankfully. But I prepped a box of 10 reeds. Nothing could go wrong, could it? Well, (laughs) until I turned up, it was the most humid festival I'd ever come across. And every single reed was just warped. It was horrid. And actually, it made me make a decision. Henry, you spoke about the synthetic skins to actually look into synthetic reeds if I know Ah. that I'm going to go into that sort of uh, arena. Do you have a similar adjustments that you make or if you know it's just going to be a hard play tonight do you have anything that you do that changes things up a little? generally it's going to be one of those horrible last minute things because you'll get there and just go this was supposed to be really nice and it isn't <laughs> yeah. if you're in mexico or this really high altitude sometimes i mean it's just the reach doesn't work and you'll scrape and scrape and scrape and it gets down to these two bits of toilet paper which would not work back in england and we've done yeah. that we've been there and you're playing out there, you're taking it down to the softest, softest thing just to try and get it to vibrate. And then you come home and you play it and you're just going, how is that possible? It goes straight in the bin usually. (laughs) It's just so different, but it's a last minute thing. It'll get to the hall and just go, ah, okay, adjustments necessary, get the reed knife out, you know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say for the, for the benefit of our listeners. When you say taking the reed down, yeah. you are literally there with a, a Stanley blade, if you like, just shaving down uh, the reed to try and get it to, to vibrate. Yeah, and um, then we'll bring the cling film in, of course, and wrap that around the reed and, try and keep see, it all together. There it is. There's it is, the cling there. film reference. <laughs> Actually, by the way, that's really good at keeping pads in as well. Oh, I did tell have a friend whose uh, pad fell out in the middle of a Marlowe symphony. And ah. um, this message was 
going frantically through the woodwind section, going, anybody got any cling film? Anybody got any cling film? And um, nobody had any. And they actually walked off stage during the symphony yeah, to try what? and get some kit, to try and get this pad stuck back in. And hopefully yeah. they were hoping to get back in time for their solo, but they missed it. But oh. the conductor hadn't seen them even walk off. And uh, the whole thing, it was a fiasco. Oh, but anyway. no. <laughs> Very quiet <laughs> moment in that symphony. There's a big gap. <laughs> and that is the tricky bit, you know. Uh, you yeah. spoke about the pad uh, just now. And for somebody that hasn't come across a wind instrument and knows what a pad is, usually made out of leather, um, and it covers the whole of the instrument that that would create the note. Um, what are your cork. pads made of? Yeah, mine are all cork. They're all cork? Oh, yeah. And- Okay. Does that swell when you travel, though? Is that a um, little bit? But they seal so much better. It's a rock solid oh. seal. Uh, I've got a couple of skin pads lower down on the instrument. But basically, yes. my maker, he, he's he's putting cork on, and that's what I've had for sort of ten years. Seems to be the best. It's a, just a rock solid seal on the instrument. Yes, and yeah, no no air escaping anywhere. I remember being in um, tour in Australia and uh, getting my instrument checked out because it just needed looking at. And uh, they said, oh, you know, we could just strip this and just put roo pads. And I was like, Yikes. what's a roo pad? <laughs> I don't know what a roo pad is. It was kangaroo skin. Oh, um, wow. And apparently it, uh, it, it holds better than, than the leather that we, we have. I haven't okay. quite done it yet, but roo pads <laughs> echoes through my mind. <laughs> so what sort of physical strength or, you know, wear and tear does your body go through during the time of performing beard on tour or just going through rehearsals what part of your body aches the most i have injured most parts of my body playing music i i mean the most regular one would probably be my back because of my poor posture but um if if it was something that was actually not just my own fault it would probably be my shoulder at the moment i'll say that because that's really sore i can my right shoulder we we kind of we're basically wood choppers in the bass section we Absolutely. Do everything we can to make as much noise as we can. And my shoulder is really sore at the moment. For every instrument we're talking about today, it really is a physical engagement when you make music. Sue, what sort of parts of your body do you feel ache the most or you have to work on the most for music? I think people really underestimate just how physical a job it is that we do. It's incredible. And I think the hardest thing, is like you really, I think our backs and shoulders are the thing that go. And especially in the old days when we were touring around, it's carrying your suitcase, carrying your instruments on your back, you know, on some of our long German tours, you know, we might be in a different hotel every day, checking in and out and traveling and... At the moment, super relaxed, feeling great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But we're not, you know, we're not working quite like we did. But um, there was one tour. I'd say that the physical thing is quite interesting because, as you say, you you keep your instruments in tip top. But um, we'd just done a long German tour and we were coming to the end of a, it was our last concert in Dortmund. And uh, we were, we've all been sitting on on the coaches for about three and a half hours. And um, we were just getting off. And I was very aware that George, um, double bass player, was getting off with his laces undone oh. and I said George be careful I was just behind him going down the steps be careful you don't you know mind you mind your laces we're all a bit sleepy after this long journey <laughs> and I just stepped off and I just caught my ankle on a one centimeter curb and it snapped no. and I really heard it go and that Friday afternoon in Dortmund I ended up in A&E and um, <laughs> ended up getting in this cab with a wet plaster and off to the concert hall and we played Bartok Concerto for Orchestra with my you know, leg on a box in plaster, no. you know. And the audience were none the wiser. No, 
No, nobody oh, knew. But wow. from the nurse who sorted me out, came to the concert and then told me off for not having my leg in the air during the concert. <laughs> 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 well, that is really interesting to hear how physical making music is. And I tell you, myself, the audience, I'm sure all of your fellow orchestra members as well, thank you for your physical endurance and for the wonderful music that you create and the emotion that goes into the connection between you and your instrument. And thank you for sharing it so candidly here at LPO Offstage. Sue, Hugh and Henry, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you, Linda. Thanks. And you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. It's been fun. <laughs> this is LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. And thanks so much to Sue Burling, Hugh Kluger and Henry Baldwin for their fantastic insights into the life of an LPO player and what they're up to at the moment. Do remember that you can stream all the LPO's current concerts on Marquee TV. Just go to lpo.uk forward slash autumn 20 and you can watch each concert free for seven days. There's a new one every week, so keep your eyes and ears peeled. You can subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, tell a friend, etc. And you should and get involved in the conversation. You'll find all the links in the description of this podcast and using the hashtag OffstagePod on your social media platform of choice. Thanks very much for listening and do join me for the next episode, which we're calling Where Are We Today? All about different venues from the LPO's home at the South Bank to their favourite and least favourite venues on tour. I'm sure there'll be some very interesting tales from backstage.